It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, welcome for this special edition of Daily Thunder. Uh, right behind me is the Valley of Ela, and uh, so we're going to do a teaching here from the valley. So let's get going. <clears throat> Uh, so you're at the top of one of the Philistine hills. So if this is the valley, uh, and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, the Philistines would have been along this ridge, correct? Yeah. And then the Israelites likely would have been on that little ridge over there. Okay. So these to get kind of some bearings. Uh, there is a, the little brook that runs. Uh, I don't see it. But anyway, it's, it runs through the valley down here. So the battle itself, you recognize that Goliath and all the Philistines are this way. Gath is kind of right behind us, several miles out. We'll look at it on the way out. But here are the Philistines, right? They're coming up from the coastal plain. They're trying to take the inland. So here is Israel then with the Judean mountains on the other side. And again, Azekah, or is that how you say it? Azekah? Is, is one of those major gate cities, right? So as you're trying to stop people from going up the valleys into the high mountains, this is one of those key locations. And as we mentioned with Samson, you realize that whoever is controlling the Shephelah is really controlling the land. So if you think about this, now we're a few hundred, probably at least 100 years, maybe 150 years past Samson, maybe 200 years. And now we're in the time of Saul. Uh, uh, the king of Israel is Saul, obviously, right? And the big enemy of him during his whole reign is the Philistines. And it's interesting when you look at the start of Saul's reign, the Philistines are in the coastal plain and they're consistently trying to take more and more land. At the end of Saul's reign, uh, there's a mention that they've gone as far as Bet-Shan, which we're going to see in a future date, which is almost to the Jordan River. Well, it's at the Jordan River. Okay, so they've really taken most of the land by, by, the end of Saul's, by, by the end of Saul's reign. So if you think about this, here are the Philistines, and this is a major gateway into the highlands. And so if they take this battle, right, the, the Philistines against the Israelites, if they take the battle here, there's literally a straight shot to Bethlehem. So if you follow the, follow the valley around, uh, in fact, Dan was telling us there's some buildings on these ridges in the very back. That's kind of like the outskirts of Bethlehem, if you will. But Bethlehem's about 15 miles away. So if you, if you imagine this being a battlefield, the moment that they take this land, it really is a straight shot to Bethlehem. So it makes sense then why Jesse is sending his older sons to fight with Saul, right? Because presumably he was, they weren't a part of the army. But here they are showing up, and David is sent to really feed them and, you know, kind of get some news. Well, why, why are Jesse's sons fighting here? Well, it makes sense that if Jesse's going to protect his home in Bethlehem, this is the place they have to stop them before they get up the valley and into Bethlehem and then eventually Jerusalem a few miles beyond that. So <clears throat> with that, that's kind of a backdrop, if you will. Uh, if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel 17. Um, I know that all of us, uh, probably of all the biblical stories, probably know this one the best. Uh, and it's the whole story of David and Goliath. But I want you to see it afresh because you can literally see it. Right? So, uh, so Ezekah means cultivated ground. So that's what this, this ridge means. And the valley itself, the Valley of Elah, is really the place of the terebinth or the place of the mighty tree. It's interesting that it's also referred to um, as 
um, Tell Zechariah, is that right? Tell Zechariah, uh, Ze- uh, which some have presumed that the prophet Zechariah, as well as John the Baptist, his father, may have been buried in the valley. We don't know for sure, but that's at least some speculation. Uh, but as you come, come to the battlefield, okay, imagine, imagine this thought. For 40 days, here's the Philistines looking at the Israelites. And every morning, every evening, Goliath comes down and he stands in the valley and he makes this taunt. And you realize it's not merely a taunt of physical strength. It's also a taunt of spiritual strength. Because the reality is in the, in the culture, it's not just a fight or a physical battle. It's, it's a fight of a spiritual sense too. You have the Philistine god, Dagon, going against the Israelite god, Jehovah. So you recognize that this taunt isn't just merely, hey, come out and fight me. It's also a sign of not just fighting, but whose God is actually stronger. So if the Philistines win here, what it is declaring is that the Philistine God really is stronger than the Israelite God. So Goliath, the giant of the land, comes down somewhere down here and starts barking to the Israelites. And again, he keeps saying, hey, uh, how about this? Instead of us trying to kill all of you, why don't we just make this simple? Uh, You send out your strongest warrior and I will fight the strongest warrior. Whoever wins that one battle, will just that'll be it. And the losers will become slaves to the winners. So this, this isn't like, hey, we have to kill everybody. Hey, let's save the life. Let's just have one man against one man. I'll be the one man for the Philistines. You send out your best man. And isn't it interesting that for 40 solid days, Israel is completely afraid there's not a single person who is willing to stand up against this beast of a man. Now, uh, when you get into the story, it's fascinating. <clears throat> Let's see. If you look at uh, starting like verses 4 through 10, <clears throat> it's describing Goliath. But it's interesting that the Goliath's name means to remove, to carry away, or to exile. I think that's fascinating. And when you actually look at his height and his weight and all this kind of stuff, his chainmail that he was wearing uh, was roughly 125 pounds. Okay, that, that, was, that was the armor he was wearing. Uh, his, the head of the spear was 15 pounds. So imagine a bowling ball, right? It's, it's that weight uh, of a spear. And it's interesting that when you, uh, when you look at all the numbers that is describing Goliath here, uh, it's interesting. I was looking at one scholar and he said that when you look at his height and look at all of his, the weight of all of his armor and all that kind of stuff, it's interesting that all of it is symbolizing or pointing to the fact uh, of this idea of a serpent, when you look at just this idea of the numbers and all this kind of stuff, the, the fact that his, his uh, armor is described as like scales upon his body and all that kind of stuff, it's interesting that there's this picture of darkness or there's this element of corruption or pervertedness or uh, serpentine kind of stuff, which I don't think is accidental, okay? Just for kicks and giggles. Um, so what, again, what you see in this story is then we have another battle of light and dark. So as we were talking about Samson before being this character of light, and yet he was so full of compromise, he wasn't, he wasn't lit very well. It's interesting in this story, you have a whole bunch of darkness, and yet there's one tiny little bit of light known as David. And yet what, what does one tiny amount of light do? It literally destroys all the darkness. It's just something to be pondering. Uh, Dan mentioned this at the other place, but you recognize this is not a fair fight. The Philistines have brought in all the, all the iron. 
so they likely would have all these weapons and all this, you know, battlement and the, the, the breastplate and, and the protection, all this kind of stuff. But in Israel, the indication is that there's actually only two pieces of armor in all of Israel, Saul and Jonathan's, that nobody else had armor. Who had all the swords? Well, it seems like Saul and Jonathan had the equipment of all of Israel and everyone else probably had plowing shear, you know, like hooks and all this kind of stuff. In other words, Israel is not set up for battle. Okay. They don't, they have, they don't have the iron. They don't have the stuff that the Philistines have. And not only that, they don't have a giant like Goliath. So as you come to the story, then Goliath is marching down one of these hills, gets into the valley. He's looking at the, the Israelites and every morning and every evening, he makes his taunt. Hey, send somebody out, send somebody out. I'll fight them. And isn't it sad that here are the people of God and not a single one of them has the boldness, the audacity, or the courage to come and fight Goliath. Uh, not a single person has this idea of like, hey, I think we can do this. In fact, when you, when you look at uh, verse, I think it's verse 24. Uh, oh, sorry, verse 11. When you look at verse 11, it says, When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were filled with terror and were greatly afraid. And by the way, in Hebrew, that's the most common word for fear. But you realize it's not just, oh, we're scared. It almost gives this idea that we have no options. Like, like how are we going to win? There, there is no option for this. We are literally, we are, we're done for. So as you, as you get into this thing, it seems like a hopeless situation. It seems like there's, there's no avenue of escape. There seems like there's no hope for victory. Now, as you come into uh, verse 12, then you have a shift taking place in the passage. So you have the Philistines who are cocky, Goliath, who is boasting, and you have the Israelites who are afraid. And on the scene, verse 12 comes this little pipsqueak of a kid. It says in verse 12, now David was the son of the Ephronite of Bethlehem in, Ju in Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. Now, as you get into the story, you find out that here's David. He's the youngest of the eight. And what's interesting is that here he is a shepherd, right? We, we, we know that much. Uh, and when you look at the language, most scholars are presuming that David is anywhere from the ages of probably like 12 or 13, maybe even 14. But he could have been as young as eight when, when you actually look at the language. So we're not talking... You know, we're not talking old teenager here. We're talking, we're talking young kid. And, and we know that by this point, he's empl employed by Saul. And so he's doing shepherding work for his dad. And then he comes over, he travels and he spends time with Saul doing the whole harp thing, right? And Jesse says, hey, I want you to check on your oldest three brothers. Uh, so here's some food. Why don't you take the 15 mile journey from Bethlehem, come over and just check on, see how they're doing. So David makes his way, comes over and gets to this hill over here. And he checks, uh, but he leaves his stuff with the uh, uh, with one of the commanders and all the all the baggage and all the equipment and that kind of stuff. And he just so happens that he's showing up at the end of these forty days. It's it's evening time, and he hears the boast of Goliath. Now it's presumably it's presuming that David had never heard this up. This is probably the first time he's been on on the scene. He's never heard the boast of Goliath, and here's Goliath. He makes a taunt. And as David hears the taunt, of course, David's like, excuse me, why isn't anybody fighting this? Like, why isn't somebody standing up and standing for the honor and the glory of our God? And of course, David makes an inquiry of saying, hey, uh, what do you get if, you know, if whoever takes Goliath down, what, what do they get? And isn't it interesting? You get wealth, you get no taxes, which sounds amazing, 
right? You get Saul's daughter. And in some aspects, it's interesting that it's kind of showing the humanity of David, that he is doing this for God's honor, but there's like this, like, yeah, I get something out of it too. Do you realize by the end of his life, do you know what his downfall was? Those things. That's very interesting to me. That what he's looking for of what he gets out of this battle is the same, same thing that causes corruption in his life later. But we know, at least from the, from the passage in, in seven, chapter 17, that this truly is for God's glory. This truly is for his renown. That all the earth might see that there is still a God in Israel. So David goes up to Saul, or it's been reported to Saul that, hey, here's this little pipsqueak of a kid who wants to take on the, 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 the giant. So Saul calls him in and says, who do you think you are? Now you realize who Saul is. He's the king. And you recognize that from earlier passages in Samuel, he actually is the giant of Israel. It says that he is head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. So if you think about this, you have a giant for the Philistines, and yet the giant for Israel is unwilling to fight. The special forces of the army of Israel is unwilling to fight. But here is a 12, 13-year-old kid who is saying, for God's glory, I want to fight. Now, could you imagine, I, this never made sense to me, Saul, as king, is entrusting his entire kingdom to a 12-year-old kid saying, yeah, you go fight him. And if you lose, we become slaves. Do you know how crazy that is? I have never yet met a 12-year-old kid that I've said, you know what, let's put all, of our, put, let's put all the stakes on you. Right? It's, it's, or at least, there must have been something special about David, in other words. And there must have been such an audacity and a courage, and obviously the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, that Saul saw something and said, all right, let's do this. Now, you know the story. Uh, Saul takes little David and dresses him up in the little pieces of armor that Saul has. And isn't it interesting that David says, this is not going to work for me. And I love the fact that David recognized that you cannot fight the enemy looking like the enemy. Isn't that interesting? That David wasn't a warrior. He's a shepherd. So David says, don't dress me up as a warrior because I'm not a warrior. At least at this point. I'm a shepherd. Let me do shepherd stuff. Right? And he looks at Saul and says, hey, look, I've, I've dealt with a lion and with a bear back home with the sheep. I, hey, the, this giant is going to be just like one of them. So I have faith in my God that my faith is what's going to take down this, this beast of a man. It's not going to be my skill. It's not going to be my ability. It's going to be my faith. It's a great lesson for our lives, by the way. Now, just as a fun irony, if you will, did you know that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin? And do you know what the tribe of Benjamin was known for? Being the best sling throwers in the land. It says that, I think it's in the book of Judges, that the tribe of Benjamin could literally throw with their left hand and hit a hair along as it's running, as, as it's running away. That literally the Benjamites were well-known slingshot throwers. And so think about, just think about the irony. Here's the giant of the day, Saul, not willing to fight Goliath. Why? Saul has no faith. And Saul, not having faith, cannot fight something that must be done in faith. So what does Saul have? He doesn't have anything. He has a little bit, he has some armor. What does David come with? He doesn't come with armor, but he does come with faith. And so what does David do? Well, he goes down in the little brook. He grabs five smooth stones. And again, there's speculation of why five. But it's interesting that when David looks at the beast of the man and he says, today your head is coming off. And of course, Goliath, Goliath laughs and just mocks and goes, are you kidding me? You come to me like a dog. 
And David says, I do not come like a dog. I come in the authority and the power of my God. In other words, watch what my God is going to do. Now, it's interesting, up before this point, you realize that there's this, there's this tension in the passage with fear against faith. For, again, verse 11, the whole idea is every time that the uh, Philistine came out, the Israelites were afraid. Uh, when you look at verse 24, when all of Israel's fighting men saw Goliath, they fled from him and they were very afraid. So again, you have this idea of fear versus faith. In fact, when David takes a step forward, isn't it interesting that three times, three distinct times, people tell him, you can't do this. Uh, and when you look, let me give you the passages here. Uh, it would be verses, uh, starting with verse 27, and you can just look this up later, but in verses 27 through 30, his brothers come to him and say, um, excuse me, why are, why, why are you even here? Did you leave the, who'd you leave the sheep with? Like, this is not your place. Go home and be with the sheep. And isn't it kind of sad that even your brothers who saw you get anointed king, this is like right before this passage, right? David was anointed king by Samuel. And so his kings, sorry, his brothers who some anointed as king, which they didn't even treat that very highly, right? Because the moment they anointed him, what does it say? They sent him back into the sheepfold. Like, we don't know what to do with this, but just go back to the sheep, right? So here, here's David. And what do they do? What are you doing here? Just go back to the sheep. So his brothers say, you can't do it. Saul looks at him and says, you can't do it, uh, which would be verse, uh, verse 33. And David again responds by the whole, hey, I've killed the lion and the bear, and this is not a big deal. It's just, it's just one guy. And my God is far bigger than this one guy. And then you have Goliath in verse 43, who steps out and goes, this is what Israel's giving me. I mean, could you imagine just the, like the humor that Goliath must have seen in this whole passage for 40 days, not a single person will come out and fight him. And on the 41st day, this kid shows up and is like, I'll fight you. And he probably hasn't even gone through puberty. So he'll be like, I'll fight you. Right. It's like, come here, I'll get you. Right. And Goliath being a big guy is like, hello. So you have this awkward tension in the whole passage. But isn't it interesting that Goliath is viewing this whole thing through self-confidence, through pride, through his own ability? In other words, he's turned within and says, I can do this. Come fight me. I have, I have it within me. David does not turn within himself. David keeps his focus upon his God. Now, if you've been in the Ellerslie world, you've heard Eric consistently. This is probably one of Eric's favorite passages, right? And, he, and of course, you have Eric's presumption that because it's known as the Valley of the, of the Terebinth, that likely being that it was probably a good place that at some point, uh, David probably been in this valley countless times. And of course, and, and Eric gives this great vision of no doubt in Eric's mind, and we don't, we have no proof of this, but Eric as a great storyteller and imagination, uh, at least puts this idea that there probably was this great big terebinth tree standing behind Goliath, right? That when David is looking at Goliath, he's not seen the giant. He's seen the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of his God. That's really overshadowing Goliath in the background. Now, whether that's true or not, doesn't actually matter because the reality is David has faith. So David steps on the scene, grabs five smooth stones. And I love uh, the word in the King James is it, that David hastened toward the giant. And the word there for hasten has this idea in the, uh, of to move with liquid veracity. It literally is to sprint full blast. It means to, it's, it's the idea of a lion or a cheetah going after a gazelle. In other words, it wasn't like David sees Goliath and goes, all right, uh, stay there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over to you. 
It's that David saw the giant and said, you're coming down and starts full at sprinting. Just says, whoa, 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 whoa. And at the same time, he's whoosh, 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 and hucks the stone. Now, it's interesting to me that Goliath must have been running as well. And it's because of the fact that it says that he fell face forward. And you realize had Goliath been standing still and he got hit, he likely been, he'd fall backwards. So the presumption then is Goliath is running toward David. David is running toward Goliath. Now, again, this is personal opinion, but I am convinced that David knew that he would get Goliath in one shot. And the reason I knew, at least I would say that, is because of that word hasten. In other words, David did not have time to reload if he's hastening toward Goliath. If he's at a full-out sprint, he doesn't have time, if he misses, to reload. So he has such faith and such audacity that he knows that in one shot, he will get the giant. Which then begs the question, why did he have four other stones? And you can do whatever you want. There's a lot of speculation. But I do find it fascinating that Goliath had four brothers. So you can do whatever you want with that. But I just find that interesting. Almost as to say, I'm bringing this one down. And if any of you want to come against me too, do it. I just love David's character. So again, David is living with courage. But it's not courage because he has it in himself. He has courage because he knows who his God is. And of course, you know the story. Goliath gets hit, he falls. David takes Goliath's own sword, which I think is hilarious. Takes his own sword and cuts off the head of Goliath. And he grabs the head and says, any questions? And of course, the Philistines start running back to the, the coastal plain and the Israelites run and chase him that direction. Now, a couple things just to note really quick. You realize that Goliath, this whole entire time, has been blaspheming the Lord our God. And do you know what biblically is the punishment for blasphemy? Stoning. Isn't that interesting? That here's a man who's been blaspheming the God of the universe, and what happens to him? Uh-huh. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, they only took one. I love it. I just think that's hilarious. <clears throat> so... At this point, uh, when you look at verses uh, 52 to 54, the whole tables have turned. Up until this point, the Israelites have been deathly afraid. And right, and there's one man that has faith, David. And the, and the Philistines were cocky. But you realize at this point, the moment that Goliath's head comes off, the Philistines are now full of fear. And they go running. And now who is borrowing from the faith of David? The Israelites. Now, a couple maybe summary points, maybe some application thoughts. One, do you realize that you as a Christian are to have courage? You are to live with audacity. You are to have boldness, but not because you have it within yourself. You are called to have courage and audacity because you have faith. And if you remember from some of our past studies, there's this idea in the Greek that the word faith and the word believe is the same Greek word, right? Believe is the verb faith is the noun so when i do the action of believing it's called faith does that make sense and as christians you recognize that we are called believers what do we do we we are the ones who live by faith we are the ones who have the courage we are the ones who live with audacity why because we know who our god is and you recognize that it doesn't matter what the what what's going on in the world around us as Christians, we should be able to stand up in front of the middle of the darkness and be the light and say, hey, you cannot pass this line. 
hey, for the, for the sake of the glory of my God, I am going to stand up. And as a matter of my age, I'm going to stand against this thing. Well, yeah, but do you know who you are? No. I'm, yeah, I know who I am. I'm nobody. But I know who my God is. And it's not because I've turned within that I have courage. It's because I have my gaze set upon him that I can have courage and faith and audacity. So do you realize it doesn't matter the situation in your life. It doesn't matter the chaos. It doesn't matter the problem. It doesn't matter what the situation may be. You are called a believer. That you are to have faith in the Lord your God. And it doesn't matter how intimidating that situation may be. He may be this massive beast of a man whose armor looks like the scales of a serpent. And yet you can have strength. You can have the oomph, if you will, the chutzpah of your God. Why? Because you have faith in your God. You know who your God is, which demands that you know who your God is. Uh, Another thought of this whole thing is when when fear presents itself, how are you going to react? And it's interesting that in the story, there's a whole bunch of fear stuff, right? You have Goliath, you have the Israelites, and you have David. And they, they all have a different picture of how they're dealing with fear. David does not have fear. He has faith in the midst of fear. You have the Israelites who are terrified. So when you are presented with, with fear, how are you going to handle it? That's just a thought for you. Um, something I found, I, just, I ponder this all the time. I think this is so interesting. You realize that I think this whole story with this landscape is a beautiful picture of leadership. Because what, what leadership does is you recognize that whoever is leading sets the tone of the environment. It sets the standard of the environment, if you will. So when you look at Saul, who's leading the Israelites, do you realize that Saul is afraid of giants? He's un- he, as the giant of Israel, is unwilling to fight the giant of the Philistines. So what does that cause his people to do? Be fearful. David, isn't it interesting? David stands up to fight a giant. And do you know what he literally does? He empowers the people under him to fight giants. When you turn to the mighty men of David, that's recorded in Samuel and Chronicles, when you start going through the stories of the mighty men of David, the 33, it's interesting. Do you know what they, do you know what they used to fight? They fought lions, bears, and giants. It's the very same thing that David did. Why? Because David, as a leader, is setting the tone for the people around him. He's literally giving them permission to have the same faith that he does. So do you realize that what that means for our life as Christians is that as Christians, you are setting the, the standard. You are setting the environment, if you will, for the people around you. Are you going to live by faith? Or are you going to live by fear? Because the moment you live by fear, you're going to cause the people around in your world to keep living by fear. And again, everyone under, under Saul's command was living by fear. Why? Because the leader was living by fear. David, his men lived by faith. They took down giants, lions, and bears. Why? Because their leader did. So could I encourage us as Christians not to placate to the world, not to live in fear, but to set the standard because you live by faith and you know you're God. Uh, one other thought really quick is, uh, are we going to have time to go down and get a rock? Uh, we could stop with the bus if we want, yeah. Might as well get a rock from the Valley of Vila, right? <laughs> Uh, so we're, we don't have time to go to the caves of Adullam, by the way. The, I guess it's like a two, two hour adventure if we did it and it's locked and all this kind of stuff. So unfortunately, we're not going to the caves. Sorry about that. Uh, where are they? Just for the sake of... In the nearby range, there is a, a, an antenna at the end of the, oh, yep. the nearby range. That's roughly Adullam. So kind of where the building's at in the antenna? Yeah. Or am I looking? Straight. 
Oh, oh, oh. There is a dirt road in the middle, and, and above it, in the distance, yes, over there is an antenna. And that's a problem. We need to drive with the bus through all those narrow dirt roads that takes forever. So if you think about where the caves then are, right? David, as he's running from Saul years later, is coming back to the very same place of faith and putting his faith and trust in God in the caves. And if you've been around Eric at all, you've heard countless sessions about the caves of Adullam. But just so you know uh, where it is over there. Uh, but can I encourage you, as we go down and grab a rock, consider this idea of a stone of remembrance. It's, it's interesting that David took Goliath's head and he brought it over to uh, Jerusalem. But he took his armor and kept the armor for himself. And it seems like there's an element of, you know, it's the spoils of war. But it seems also that it's, a, it's a, uh, this idea of remembrance. Right? If, if you look at this idea of uh, uh, 1 Samuel 7, 12, I'll just read this to you. It says that Samuel took a stone and set it between Mitzpah and Shin, and he called its name Ebenezer, or the stone of help, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. There's something interesting all throughout the scriptures about this idea of stones of remembrance. And at Ellerslie, we talk about this on occasion where it is so important to rehearse the faithfulness of our God. And if you think about this, David had Goliath's armor. And wouldn't it be interesting, every so often he would walk into the tent and he would see the armor and just have this like smile going, yep, my God is good. Do you realize you need those things in your life? You need these stones of remembrance to remember that God is faithful. That even in the midst of this crazy giant who's coming against you, God is faithful. And so we, we talk about this idea of the importance of journaling. Why, why is journaling good? Because it becomes stones of remembrance for you. So you can go back and remember and rehearse all that God has done for you. So can I just encourage you, uh, maybe grab a rock for somebody else if you want to give a gift. But take a rock. By the way, they said the rock likely was probably the size of a baseball that David threw. I'm not saying you should take one that size because that, that will weigh down your luggage. But take a rock and use it as a stone of remembrance. One, to remember this place, which is pretty epic. But also this idea of remembering who your God is. Uh, one of the things that I've just done every time I've come to Israel is that I just started collecting a rock from every place that I go. So anytime I go to a new new site that I've never been to before, I'll take a rock and I'll number it. And then I put in my journal the number and the location. And for me at home, I have uh, I have some fun Israel stuff, but I have this jar and it's just full of rocks. And now anytime I have an adventure or any fun place I go to, I always take a rock. And for me, it's, it's, a, it's a picture of all the stuff, all these memories that I've created over the years of places I've been. But it's also a reminder for me of seeing this rock pile to say this Look at what God has done in my life. It's, it's a reminder to me to stop and pause and say, okay, what has God done? So if I can encourage you, even if you don't do all rocks from every place, I'm not suggesting that at all. But at least take a rock from here and let it be for you a memorial. Let it be an Ebenezer where you start saying God is faithful. And just as God brought down a giant by faith, would you start putting that kind of faith in the Lord your God and recognize that God is still upon the throne? I love the scene that the moment that Goliath fell and his head got chopped off, it literally said, well, right before this point, it says that when David saw the, the giant, David said, on this day, your head is coming off and it will be, it'll be known to all the world that there's still a God in Israel. That this was a declaration, it was a remembrance that, hey, just as God dealt for David with a lion and a bear, so too he'll do with this giant. And the giant became a picture for all of Israel that God is still God. So have an Ebenezer in your life. Take, take something as a memorial to say, hey, God is still God and he is faithful. He is full of faith. Okay, he is trustworthy and he's worthy to be praised.
Well, hopefully that was encouraging. If you want updates about future trips to Israel that I am taking, where you can come and study the Bible in the land it took place, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash Israel, which will give you the, either the upcoming trip or information where you can learn about that. And I'd love to have you join us where you can actually experience the Valley of Elah live in an upcoming trip. Our next trip is going to be April of 2020. I'd love to have you join us. Well, for today's Daily Thunder, this is Nathan live from Israel. Have a great day. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.